miles over and three miles down. A history of mining, miners and their families in Castlecomer, County Kilkenny. Hello and welcome to Three Miles Over and Three Miles Down, which tells the rich history and heritage of the Castlecomer mines. In this series, we'll hear the history of the mines and mining in the Castlecomer area of Kilkenny from prehistory to 1969, when the mines closed, ending centuries of iron and coal mining in the area and the surrounding Leinster coalfield. In this programme, we'll hear about the final closure of the mine. As you'll hear, there was an inevitability about it, and despite the best efforts of the mine owner and the workers, the mine closed on January the 31st, 1969. With that, the mining tradition in Castlecomer came to an end after almost 300 years. Much has been written and is on public record about the mining industry in Ireland in the 50s and 60s. Oil was becoming cheaper and was a cleaner fuel for many of the mine's customers. There were other economic and political factors at play also, but one moment puts it into perspective. Nellie Holden, who came from a mining household, was in the Middleton distillery once and asked a simple question. The answer was as plain as could be. We were doing the tour and I asked the question when he said the anthracite was brought from Wales. And I asked the question, would you not get the anthracite in Ireland? And he said, he came back to me and he said the reason was it was too expensive to bring it from Ireland. Because I was from Castlecomer, I had the best anthracite in Europe and it was too expensive to bring it by train from Comer than it was to bring it on the boats from Wales over. The tour guide told me. We've heard in previous programmes about the work of union organiser Nicholas Nixie Boran. He spent a long number of years fighting for the rights of mine workers in Castlecomer and when the mines themselves came under threat, he was not found wanting. Locally and nationally, he and other members of the trade union movement fought to keep the mines open throughout the 60s. His daughter Anne explained to me about the early stages of that struggle and told me that the mines themselves actually closed for a period of time in 1965. He was elected to the executive of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union. So it shifted him to a sort of national position where he could lobby. So he, he did a lot of lobbying for, for example, pneumoconiosis. He did a, a lot of lobbying for legislative reform for safety, sort of the mine and quarry acts. Um, because he had access to the uh, politicians and he had access to Congress, the other trade unions, um, as a member of the executive, he had access there. And Tom Brennan Rowe also managed to get, uh, he was the chairman in Castlecombe branch, he managed to get on Congress with my father's help, you know, with the people he knew, the workers he knew and the contacts. So they had two lobbying you know, at a very central level um, for legislative change. So when they had just got the mine and quarry um, bill through in 64, when they discovered the mines were in crisis. So it was too late almost, you know, for the mines. Um, and um, it was because they'd had a survey, um, once they had a survey done, um, uh, they, were, they were, had been having some difficulty, you know, sinking shafts and they're not being particularly successful, etc. And the cost of production was going up quite a lot. And um, 
they were struggling to sell the amount of coal that they had, you know, extract the amount that they wanted to extract and then market it. Um, so it was definitely linked to difficulty within the coal industry in Ireland and then to the conditions in in the, in Deer Park. Um, so the report suggested that actually the prospects weren't very good um, and that there might be prospects in two areas, you know, that could be exploited, but um, not in general they felt that the expenditure that would be demanded might might well, be worth it. Despite Nixie Boren, the union and the Wandersford family, the mines closed in 1969. But it was not for lack of effort, as Anne Boren explains. So it closed down in, in 1965. And of course, they're not galvanised. So my father was up and jumping. <laughs> and uh, they had a development committee in the town and he was on that. And uh, then on the executive of the Irish Transport, they lobbied the TDs. Uh, like Patterson, James Seamus Patterson here from Kilkenny was fantastic. And some of the other TD, TVs, TDs were, were absolutely fantastic as well. All the local representatives actually were very strong. And they brought it up constantly in the Dáil. They represented really the workers' interests and what they were saying about that there was coal down there. And the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union got another survey done. And the second survey was far more positive than the first. So that gave them some reinforcement in relation to government, who then rolled out a series of grants and loans and uh, support that lasted for about another three years. Um, and the miners were great in terms of trying to adjust to the new reality, you know, in 65. They started with 20 and then worked up again to a workforce of about 200. But they kept meeting obstacles. They did their bit as best they could, um, you know, to, to be as efficient as possible, to make suggestions about new forms of fuel, you know, that they could that would be more marketable. Uh, but of course, that would demand a lot of expenditure, extra expenditure. Um, and in a sense, they didn't have success in hitting a seam that was uncomplicated and that was a good source of further fuel before the, the, um, you see the losses began to mount up. So they were fighting really a losing battle. And when the government pulled the funding then, Wanisford closed the mine immediately. So that was January 1969. And uh, um, just before that, that previous three months, my father was on the board of directors of the mine. So he, because Wanisford had difficulty communicating really with the workers. So that really helped you know, to coordinate the workforce in, in in trying to save the mines. And they managed to do it for that three years. And in the meantime, of course, um, they, they had lobbied the government to have a more long-term view of, of um, 
for the district and it, it was designated a, an area of, of a special development needs and they gave very lucrative grants to industry to come in so it was um, it was two-thirds of the cost of setting up something like that new industry and they got managed to get five new industries into the area so there was some alternative that was built up and that was kind of um, well planned in a sense transition period that they kept it going for long enough for that to happen while the final decision in 1969 fell to Richard or Dick Pryor Wandisford, who was in charge of the mine at the time, his predecessor, also Richard, known as the Captain Pryor Wandisford, had steered the mines through most of the 20th century. He had been aware, as many people were, that economic and political realities were at play in the 50s, and he did his level best, as many did, to hold the mine open as long as possible. He was also painfully aware of the consequences of the decision to close the mine on Castlecomer and the local economies, bringing to an end 300 years of mining in the town. Geoffrey Barr Wandesford, who's custodian of the Wandesford family archive, spoke to me about the captain, about his legacy and about his understanding of the impact of the mines on the Castlecomer area. I think, on the whole, his life made a difference, a big difference to Castle Comer and a big difference to the mines. And he was devastated towards the end when, in the 1950s, um, the writing was on the wall because of the advent of oil as the main source of fuel. And he poured money in to try to save the mines. In fact, he he sold some of his Yorkshire properties um, to raise money and put it into the mines um, to try to to save them and to continue production probably longer than they should have been kept open. But... um, in some ways, luckily for him, he died before the end came, and it was left to my uncle, who was also Richard, but known as Dick Brywondersford. He um, had the task of eventually closing down the mines, and that, of course, was devastating, devastating to Castle Coma, um, because not only the direct, uh, em- directly employed people uh, became unemployed, but the mines had provided so much indirect employment in terms of the shops and the uh, other businesses in the town, and uh, indeed in the in the surrounding area, the suppliers of equipment and so on to to the mines. It was a devastating period. With the closure of the mine, there were many knock-on effects in the town and in the surrounding areas for the miners themselves and people who supplied services to the mine. Errol Delaney's family provided transport services to the mine for most of the 20th century to the closure of the mine. And he told me of his own recollections of the closure and the way that, even in the face of a pretty catastrophic closure, there was some elements of relief. It was softened a little bit by the the open cast mining and also 
uh, for, well, from I mean our perspective in terms of um, wholesaling coal to other customers, Ballingarry in Tipperary, Ballingarry Mines, they continued to operate. And right in, through the 1970s into the 80s. So there was still a supply. Ross Moore in County Carlow, they were independent to the Castlecomer Coalfield um, Company, the collieries. And so they continued to operate. And then <clears throat> the open cast companies, uh, McGregor, Yates, Paisley, all these different um, independents that were um, going after uh, outliers of coal, they continued to produce. So it, it wasn't a total stop. The, but the big uh, mine, the colliery uh, known as the Deer Park, that was the one that employed up to 400 men uh, at the peak. So economically for Castlecomer, that was an enormous blow. It was, and psychologically, it, it's hard to explain, but these people were mining for 300 years. And the families, father, son, their sons, their sons. It was handed down and it was so ingrained into the, the, the psyche of the Castlecomer people that for the, the main, the deer park or the park, it was known as locally, for it to close, it was devastating really. And uh, um, I just barely remember, I was only uh, five years old, four or five years old when it closed, but I do remember being there with my father in the um, loading trucks and stuff um, in the pit yard and uh, it, it was such a um, such a strong part of the, the and remembering all the, the streams of miners coming out the, with the black faces it was just for as a child it's just such a strong memory The immediate impact on the miners was redundancy. Seamus Walsh was one of the miners affected and he's written about that time He and other miners wondered why the mine could not be funded while miners needed to be paid redundancy and social welfare like what was the, the difference of trying putting money into the pit and lads going to sign on to the do, on the dole and they were going to be on the dole or insurance for their life because they wouldn't wouldn't be able to work, you know. When you think of it, miners were one of the first lot in Ireland, Irish workers to get redundancy, and we were, that was the bad stare. And uh, all these guys came down from the, the department and they were taking names and number. When did you start? Seamus also told me that while the redundancy money was very welcome initially, a harsh reality awaited the men. Some lads got £500 and some other lads got £1,000. Unmerciful money at the time. And sure, the pubs, there was nine pubs in Comer at the time. And, and the miners, they threw fire out the money anyway. And they even bought drink for men that didn't know. You know, that was a, a sad case. And they thought the money was going to last for everything. Uh, the next thing they went down, they stayed down to the Dole office and heard they were getting 25 and £30 a week, which was down to £7. You know, that was that was devastating for the miners. You know, there was men after paying their stamps and, pay, and looking after the, keeping the country warm and they were thrown in the scrappy. In Seamus's book, he describes the immediate human effects on the miners when the pit closed. I'll never forget walking down Kilkenny Street sometime in February in 1969 and see two, 200 white-faced miners standing outside the Dole office. They were going to sign on for the very first time. The humiliation these great men were enduring, for not alone did they lose their jobs, but a way of life was gone forever. 300 years of coal mining had come to a sad end. It was OK for us young fellas at the time. We could chance our arm at anything. But the old miners, they were the big worry. Where were they going to get jobs? Nobody wanted a miner whose lungs now were packed up with dust. The young miners most immigrated, bringing with them blue marks from the pit. 
but the miners will always be remembered for the camaraderie, the work and the wit. But why is there a yearning to go back to what is long gone? Is it because part of you, your family, your friends, men you lived with, laughed and cried with, are permanently fossiled in the seam of your memory? A seam that is ancient and gone forever as that which was plunged from the depths of the Deer Park Mine. And so I journey out those few miles along the clock road to the grave of the Deer Park Mine. Not a single or a soul in sight, but there is a touching here, a slow unfolding and gathering of the bones of the, of the dead are fleshed with remembering. I rise and walk around the pitch yard now, knowing that beneath my feet lie the trapped echoes of another time. The effects on the town of Castlecomer were not immediate as the redundancy money was in circulation. But eventually the shops in the town started to close, as Anime Tracy told me. Well, sure, there was drapery shops anyway. And uh, then there was Fogarty's and you could go in and get a soup. Man, I'd go in and get measured for a soup and they'd be made and, you know, and um, then there was, uh, of course, hardware shops in it. They're gone. Well, Michael Fogg, or not Michael Rose, is there, all right, but it's moved down. down. And um, there was a. Um, then there was Martin Rings. That was a great draper shop. There was um, a couple of more shops with drapery in it. And uh, then there was the hotel. And that was there for a long time. And then the people that owned it sold it and the ones that took it over I didn't work with them at all but that's been um, built at the moment the the, the hotel and uh, there was, was then of course the post office was always there yeah then there was up Barrick Street there was Rings, a great trappers, menswear, suits, and all that. Tommy Fogarty's down. Then, Maura Shortall is a local councillor, and his family's connection with the mines goes back many generations. He spoke to me about the immediate aftermath of the closing of the mines, how the miners adjusted to new realities, and how a community response saw a resurgence in the fortunes of Castlecomer. I suppose when, when the mines closed in '69, the alarm bells started ringing because suddenly you were having 600 wage packets gone completely out of the town. And thankfully, Castlecomer Development Association. Uh, in association with, we'll say, the mining fraternity and the business community of the town got together and I suppose they formed a mini task force at that particular time. And we were very, very fortunate as well to have the Minister for Agriculture living quite close and that was the late Jim Gibbons. And there was a, a concerted effort that time and they were the days now before we say social workers or economic workers or came to a town. But I suppose the town united to try to attract 
we'll say, alternative industries. And the difficulty was that to most of those miners, they only knew that way of life. And suddenly, anyway, the focus was on Castlecomer. And we were fortunate that Kilkenny Engineering Products relocated out to the Kilkenny Road, that Comer International Textile Factory arrived from Canada, and that Roadmaster Caravans, the Miles McCabe, was located out in um, Monin Row. Soon after that, Armand Brick arrived in Ardra. And we were very, very fortunate because quite a few of those industries were manufacturing and suited the people who had been displaced from the mines. Quite a few of them worked in the um, textile factory and there was great stories told how they used to manage the very, very fine yarn compared to a lump of coal. But miners were durable, but they were also flexible and also good workers. And no challenge was too big or too small for them. And I'm, I was delighted to work with several former miners in the um, textile factory. I worked there for 26 years and every single one of them could hold their own with anybody. Larry Parr described how the closure impacted on friendships and how emigration was an option for some. I remember when we chaps, you get to know friends in a mine better than anywhere because they were so tossed near together like, you know. And uh, I one in the morning, in the latter years, before the, the general closed down, uh, such a one got, they'd all assembled together, like Swallows, where they'd meet in the mornings, meeting place. Then they all had to dispatch and go to different directions. But we'd be, we'd be having our crack with each other. And there could be four or five lads every Monday morning missing going away to England. You know, I, I met a good few of them out, but there was a good few of them I never met after, you know. And to stay in your mind well, when you may have me for friend and no friend, you don't forget, you know. It's terrible I haven't went away. But I just, I got married here very young and other than that, I suppose I gone away at all. You know. The skills the miners had were still valued in one industry. John Coffey told me how the miners' tunnelling and digging abilities worked in another line of work. Some of them got work in the ESB in Dublin. Uh... That there were some incredible stories that I, when when I was here, you know, like, so that would have been the late seventies. So in the mid seventies, some of these men were travelling every day to Dublin, on bad roads, uh, to work along the canal. They were putting in wiring along the canal, and there was I think there was a manager or supervisor who had some connections here with the, with the village, with the area, and he probably got them to work. But there were men probably in their, you know, 50s, but their fellow workers in Dublin just couldn't believe that these men could dig a trench, you know, in two seconds, whereas these lads were taking a day to do it, you know. While the Deer Park mine closed itself, it is a fact that there was coal still to be found in the Deer Park area and the Leinster coal field generally. Larry Power mined on a small-scale basis subsequent to the mine closure, and he has strong opinions about what might have been done. There is, there could be, we'd say, small mines operated to hand out deposits, a good call to slip, but I don't know where it starts, really. Number one is you won't get less to do the work anymore. You know, maybe that's a good thing, because when there was plenty of lads, there was plenty of hurt, and there was plenty of broken hearts with families going away off the country and 
you know, you had all that thing, you know. In the finish up, the writing was on the wall for that uh, it was going to close, you know. People since it was going to close. Like, they got a, they got a good, uh, some uh, fairly respectable grants to keep it going, but it was a terrible misuse of money. A good money. A lot of money. You got a quarter of a minute once there. Don't allow her money back. Going back a long time. You know, it could have been put into something better. Or if there'd been uh, another mind to develop, it should have went into that. Instead of uh, uh, handouts and handouts keep things going. Just bad, bad. You know, I don't say too much about that. Just uh, wasteful good money. You know, putting the uh, money into something that's uh, just going to in order and eventually it's going to run out and they go back again like with a representation to the government to get more money in. and the day that was announced the general closed down they were just told there's no more money for there you couldn't you couldn't say that. you know you, you couldn't say subsidising something that is not future that's well, fair play to the locality that came along after and got fuel factories. You know, that was a good thing. But that was, that was money thrown away. While it's accepted that there is coal there to be got, things have moved on and Larry accepts that the technology that would be needed for a small scale is different to the scale of technology currently in use in modern mining. You're very limited to technology in coal mining. So done on the land, you can see yourself, you know, to have introduced machines to the world. Uh, the, uh, the, to do any type of work. Uh, harvest all types of crops, but you're limited in the, in the coal mine. You just can't do it. You know, in this particular type of uh, air and Linster coal pits, you know, it, it shouldn't be... It wouldn't be economic. Well, there's nothing, there's nothing out there to take place of uh, what man could do in it. You know, a machine just can't do it. You create terrible danger. You'd have to make huge entrance. You could have several rock falls. You know, it wouldn't. It's not. Uh, and the the uh, the geological makeup of the rock of what's overhead is not suitable for you know it just have to be real good sandstone overhead and to be able to make big entrance and you can't in this because the best coal was ever got around here now was the three foot scene that, and that was the nearest to the surface there's deposits of that lift here and there and you're already you're already parked over where there was working sun I suppose over 200 years ago and all them houses all the area it's all standing upon pillars Yardy square pillars of coal, but uh, they had a shale. You see, right uh, within within fifteen foot at the surface, at the side, like you know, you dig up that there, um, you, you you get subsoil and to about fifteen foot. Well, then you get about uh, twenty five foot of a shale. Great for making bricks. Wonderful for bricks same jail and that wasn't suitable to take out all the coal you couldn't 
you had to leave about a, nearly a third of it there to be able to extract the other two thirds. You know, that's still left there, but that, that wouldn't be economical. Seamus O'Connor has written extensively on mining in the Leinster coal mines. He holds to the view that anthracite is a clean coal and that more should be done, perhaps at official level, to ensure its continuation. That said, he accepts that newer power generation methods such as wind turbines have a place in the Leinster coal field. If any coal is viable, anthracite coal is, because it's the smokeless one. You know, so if anything, any coal will ever be used, that'll be it. But your trouble about it is we don't have enough of industrial type people in Ireland who know what they're doing. Like, they wouldn't be able to do it is the difficulty. You look at the states now or China where the skill and the knowledge is there and people who know what they're about. They, they're still using coal in a big way and it's still a major source of power. But um, lack of knowledge and maybe they wouldn't even know how to go about it, man. There's, I think, supposed to be 80 million tonne of coal still underneath the plateau that may never be used. It could be replaced perhaps by when we're looking at the turbines because they're here and they're, I think they're very attractive and they're giving power back to the system but they're also giving a great livelihood to the landowners who have permitted them here and they're, they're helping to keep people living here as well. Since the mines closed in 1969, much of the social history of mining has been preserved by local writing groups. Willie Joe Mealy explained how they've developed. We started in about over 20 years ago, clock writers we call ourselves, and we wrote all about mines and every, our experience there as, you know, children of coal miners and all that sort of thing. And then we moved on to do other things and we've gone in now to the fossils and I'm, I'm very interested in that and exploring and when I go to where there's old coal mines now rather than rooting for coal I'm looking for stones and what and there's amazing things is thrown up we had a a night in Clough um, handling fossils and we repeated it in for culture night last year in Morning Row Hall and that's in the miners' hall, the hall that the, the miners built or paid to build. And, well, we involved the schools. And the schools, that the, the children of the miners or the, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the coal miners are as much interested in what we're doing about the mines and they love to be identified with the mines now that uh, more than maybe we were at the time. Margaret McGrath is a local writer who's written extensively about the Castlecomer area and in particular the lives of miners and the social history attached to them. She spoke to me about the heritage, the social order that attached to mining and one particular phrase which irked her. Only a miner. Only a miner. Yes, I, I, was, I was very sore about that because I felt, look... We're all workers. It doesn't matter whether we're sweeping the road or teaching school or working in an office. We all work to earn our living. And Tuppence Apney shouldn't look down on Tuppence. And because I, it, it worried me for years. And the night that Seamus launched the book, 1999, his first book, In the Shadow of the Mines, I was really looking forward to standing on that stage and saying, never again will anyone say, only a miner. 
And, you know, a cheer went up <laughs> and they lifted the roof. Oh, it gave me such satisfaction because I was so proud of Seamus. So I'd left school at 13 and gone to work in the mine. I was so proud of him that he was recording all this for us and for our children and grandchildren. History that might never be written down. And that's why at the launch of Seamus's last book, Call in the Blood, I felt, you know, he's done two books. Maybe there's a trilogy in it. Maybe the next one should be full of just stories that were never told and need to be told. And, you know, it's all right now, but say 50 years time. I mean, my grandchildren don't know anything about the mines. You know, I I have every intention of bringing them up to the mine and maybe bringing out Seamus and getting them. Some of them live in Cork and some of them in Dublin. So they have no notion of what it's like. So they need they need all this information. And later on, they'll be doing theses and stories on different things. And they'll, they'll need all this to do the research. And they'll need the stories of genuine living people who are telling them the story from their hearts. When I spoke with Mae Dormer, she said there was a poem that meant a great deal to her. So she recited it for me when we had our chat together. This, uh, this poem was written by, um, I think it was Martin Fennelly. He was from Abbey Leaks in County Leash. And it's Ode to Seor. My heart goes out to those brave men who mined the Comer ore. Through thick and thin, their kit and kin, with shovels they did bore. For three hundred years, through sweat and tears, they hacked away the seam, miles away, down underground, with a lonely candle beam. The Brennan rose, the Brennan dance, the Brennans one and all. They went about their dangerous task to get their wherewithal. The Mourns and the Langtons did not shirk the spade, the Comerfords and Gagans and the Hoses from the Glade. Let's not forget the women folk in their tidy miners' homes, who did not know from day to day would their sweetheart ere more roam. From morning row to the timber row, where many a prayer was said that the mines would return again, it was their daily bread. One of the more recent economic developments in Castlecomer is the Discovery Park, which started life as a community response to the economic issues that had befallen Castlecomer. It was to house a mining exhibition. It was to house the social history of mining and the mining community. Errol Delaney was involved in the early stages of that project and he explained the genesis of it. There was a group um, we set up, the Castlecomer Domain Company, in uh, I think it was around 1994. And... We, we did have a couple of ideas in mind. One was the restoration of the Castlecomer domain, which was the parkland uh, to do with the estate. It was a huge 22,000 acre estate. And the domain itself was like the, the, the front garden or the back garden of the big house. So you had a big area, a few hundred acres of nice uh, ornamental gardens and man-made lakes and nice walks and so on. <clears throat> but it had grown just gone wild for the last 60, 70 years. And we could see the potential was there. Um, we The lakes were uh, had grown over, uh, the, the walks were grown over. You, you couldn't get through the place. It was um, like a jungle. 
And we we had that in mind. We wanted to open the parkland, get it back to something like what it was. Uh, we had old photographs. We had old <clears throat> ordinary survey maps. We knew where, what was there two, three hundred years ago. Uh, and then there was also this feeling of we were losing a lot of the old miners were were passing on uh we were losing that whole knowledge of the the mining past and a lot of the younger generation it completely alien to them they knew nothing whatever about um the anthracite and what it meant to go down underground and to be digging where it was commonplace but it, it was such a big part of everybody's life in Castlecomer that uh, we all felt that it had to be preserved and remembered. And also some of the terrific characters that were lived and worked here, that there were so many stories that, uh, and in some ways I think we were probably a bit slow, a, a bit late. We lost some, maybe some of the, the uh, real characters that we should have been recording and uh, interviewing. But anyhow, it, a lot has been saved. After years of <clears throat> planning and uh, thinking about this and uh, looking for different places to build uh, a museum or a, an interpretive centre. Uh, we ended up uh, locating in the, what is the, the Castlecomer estate yard. It was the old farmyard gardens of the Wandersford estate. Once the location of the Discovery Park and Exhibition Centre was agreed, work then turned to the exhibition itself. The work was undertaken by Jonathan Mason and he told me about the interesting facts that kept coming up as he developed the exhibition itself. The initial view of the Castlecomer Domain Company, their focus really was on the, the mining tradition and uh, uh, the, the, you know, the fact that uh, there were still miners alive, and the the uh, there's a unique culture um, in coal mining areas generally, uh, which Castlecomer shares uh, the the nature of the work, the danger, and the cooperation that's involved uh, among the men um, seems to create the same sort of. Um, social cohesion and um, very often a socialist uh, ideology. And this was obviously uh, very much a part of the Castlecomer tradition and in Ireland, um, very unique uh, to have a sort of a rural area, a small town, um, you know, sending delegates off to Moscow <laughs> was quite extraordinary. So there was these 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 sort of tensions and uh, um, a fascinating cultural uh, identity to the town, uh, which obviously, with the death of the coal industry, uh, you know, the the this was becoming uh, getting to the edge of local memory. Um, so there was a, a concern to record all of that. And I think that's where the initial impetus came from. And uh, uh, then when uh, I came into the project, um, John Fian, uh, who's uh, an ecologist and uh, uh, who I had worked with on a, a series of, about the Irish landscape with Eamon de Butler, I think he was the uh, initial contact that drew uh, uh, myself and, and the company that I, campus company in Trinity that I was working in uh, 
into the project. And John uh, trained as a geologist, and that's my own background as well. I was in uh, a rather uh, less academically successful <laughs> geology student, but nonetheless, I came out of it still with a fascination with geology. And uh, the um, coal itself, obviously, is 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 a fossil material. Um, uh, so you know what you're looking at is these great quantities of of plant material that have been uh, compressed and heated and and transformed uh, uh, into this in the case of of Castle Comer into this very hard um, brittle bright anthracitic coal uh, of the very highest quality. Cathy Purcell is the manager of the Castlecomer Discovery Park, which houses the mining exhibition and outdoor activity centre. She told me that it is still very much a community-led organisation. Well, uh, as you know, a small community group got together with the idea of developing rural tourism. So that was there when the manufacturing jobs left. Um, After the coal mining, there was a number of manufacturing businesses that came in through the IDA and through uh, various government development agencies. But by the late 1990s, they had all disappeared as well. So I think um, the community really felt, well, we've got to do something for ourselves. And they came together with the idea of developing rural tourism and that's where the coal mining museum started and that was very successful particularly at the at the beginning first number of years but I think there was kind of a recognition that they needed more to attract people to come and it was an obvious extension to move outdoors to this wonderful 80 acres that we have now that's why we're very proud of our social enterprise because I think we're very dynamic. Every single year we've added on something significant. So even if you take last year, um, we added archery, we completely changed our Christmas experience, we added an outdoor cafe. This year we've put in mountain biking, we've put in axe throwing, um, and I know I'm even forgetting something, um, but you know, we're, we're constantly developing and evolving. And for us, the next step is camping more uh, overnight camping accommodation so group camping so that groups can come let's say youth groups school groups then individual yourself you know different people come camping and then eventually glamping and this then complements the diverse kind of offerings that are coming on stream in the town so we have the development of the Avalon Hotel and we also have a high-end restaurant coming into the Creamery building um, I'm, I understand Keith Boyle the chef there is looking for a Michelin star so that's kind of the level we're at and so I mean I think what the Discovery Park has has done it's taken I suppose 10 years but we're really beginning to see the fruits of the development uh, happening in the town. One final word from Peter Keeley on his memory of the Deer Park Miners and his own wry look back on his own history. And we used to have the old crack. We used to play morning row and football and we could, we could finish up at the end of the night getting out to have an old boxing match and go home then. But I worked to them, meaning they were, I had to work great miners. Right? They were born to that. It never again put me in together like that. In 1962, the union done a survey, there was 2,500 men working involved in mining in the Leinster Caulfield. Now it is one. We said, Ross Moore. 
from the dinosaur. On my visit to the mines, Seamus Walsh read out the inscription written in tribute to the miners. In memory of all the men and boys who worked hundreds of feet below the ground to earn a living. In tribute to our great women who were the backbone of the mining community, supporting and caring for their menfolk. In memory of all those who lost their lives and were injured in the mine, may they be at peace with the Lord, out of the shadows, into the light. We leave the final word to Seamus Walsh again. It was written a poem about the closure of the mines. The water runs so free and clear now from the grave of the Deer Park mine, flowing down the Powley River on its way to the Silvery Dean. The pitwater carries many stories of great miners and where they lay, wedging and digging out the coal, lying on their sides with candles and balls of clay. The water was a big threat too when the mine was ill full flow, for you'd never know the day or night it would decide to have a go. There was many a serious accident in the mine so far below, broken bones and broken hearts when loved ones failed to come home. Nick Kelly was the last to die here, and you know he was just a boy. I'll not forget the doom and gloom till stay with me till the day I die. The dear park mine is gone now, but memories live forever. For the men who kept that fire at law, I know we'll meet in heaven. So here's to all those great mining men who worked the dear park coal. For why we went so far below, I guess we'll never know. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed hearing the voices of the miners and their families, the people who set up the mines and developed the mines, and the people who have worked since to preserve the memories of the men. They travel to their work every day, three miles over and three miles down, and they won't be forgotten. Three Miles Over and Three Miles Down is a documentary series presented and produced by Martin Bridgman for KCLR with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. 